All right, as we take up this, uh, Deuteronomy, we know, is that book that he's writing at, uh, Moses is writing at the end of his time and at the end of the wilderness journey to really reiterate and focus. But I want us to notice more than that. At times, we, we draw our attention too strongly to Moses. Moses was a wonderful servant of God who served in many ways. But I want us to note this, and this is something that men often miss and we're in danger of. Because we will say, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 and Peter says here. And, and, and we'll mention the particular individuals who are the human authors. Which is good and valid and, and helpful also as we consider their experience and their journeys and their particular use of words. But let us never forget that as we do so, holy men of God spake as they were carried along, born along, moved by the Holy Spirit of God. Such that the scriptures that we have, God's word tells us, all scripture is God-breathed or given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That's why there is a sense in which we say Moses wrote and Paul wrote, etc. But even more strongly, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that it is God's word. And specifically here, what is being instructed many times through Moses isn't, isn't God interacting with Moses. Moses, regarding the future and the, the plans of Israel and the potential leadership in kings, what are your ideas? You know, let, let's, let's go back and forth for a little while and, and see if we... Uh, Agree or see if you can contribute some insight. No, that's not how it works, is it? God declares. It's a wonderful thing we, we understand regarding the law that was given to Moses. How much of it was his own input? None. God gave it to him. He went up on the mount and God delivered it to him. The details of the tabernacle and how, much, how it would be built. Who gave it to him? God, in every detail, you will build it in every detail according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. And all of the peculiarities also with regard to the sacrifices and the various activities with the blood and the entrails and the things that are uncomfortable for some people. All of those details, it wasn't a matter of what we want. What would be boiled and what would be burned and what could be used for food and what had to be fully consumed by fire? All of that was determined by God. Let's never lose sight of the fact that it's God's word. Here also as we take up, this is God through Moses speaking to the children of Israel. And in so doing, we see a remarkable statement again. Which it's just too easy to, to breeze past, you know. And, and I love the uh, McShane's readings and, and other Bible reading schedules. And there's a, a number of chapters that you would go through in a given day. And the potential drawback to large intake is that you don't focus. And you just kind of read past things. And so that's why I always encourage the McShane thing is great to take in and grow in a broader knowledge of the whole counsel of God's word. But be sure you've also got a section of scripture that you're praying over and digging in more detail into. And they say, well, who has time for all of that? Uh, you do. <laughs> we all do because it's more important than eating. <laughs> all right. So I, what, what I, he says here in, in beginning verse 14. When you come into the land in which the Lord your God is giving you. Again, I love that simple reminder. Why are they getting this land? How are they going to gain ownership of this land? Is it by them staking a claim and planting a flag? Is it by, by them and their skillful battle and, and, and rapid wit? Will they figure it out on their own? No, this is the land that God is giving you. I love those simple reminders. And then he says, you will possess it and dwell in it 
and then say, Oh, God's perfect knowledge of what is to come. God knows not only the degrees of obedience and faithfulness that he will by grace work in us. He also knows the failures, the compromises, the selfish demands. You know, every time I, I stumble and fall in any particular way, you know, I, I may have thought, no, I've grown, I've come past that. And then I may be exceedingly frustrated with myself. But I note this, my stumbling did not surprise the Lord. <laughs> and what is extraordinarily blessed and, and defies human expectations at times, that his mercy is ready to meet me in the face of my mistakes. And just receive me back. Here he says, he knows exactly what they're going to do. Remember, when they do this, they're going to demand a king. We want a king over us. Which is, when they demand this in Samuel, Samuel is going to be so grieved. And God is going to say to them, no, no, no. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as king over them. So God knows that the people are going to move forward. He knows that they are going to reject him from being king over them. But what's even sadder as you look at the way that it unfolds, they're going to ask for a king, but their motivation. It says what? We want a king. I will set a king over me. You will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations. That are around me. Uh, to me again when we read that. Why would they want to be like all the nations around them? God is the one who of all the nations. Has distinguished them. Purchased them. Redeemed them. Brought them out unto himself. He has given him his law. And his promises. Which are exceedingly good. Why would they want to be like the other nations? The other nations that follow after their own hearts. The other nations that do what is right in their own eyes. The other nations that follow gods that are no gods. Absolute empty. Absolute powerless. Absolute futile. Why would they want to be like them? The God's word actually warns in, in Le Leviticus chapter 20 verse 23 says this, you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things and therefore I detest them. Mm. They had come to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 and said, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the other nations. God said it in Deuteronomy. All right. And now we are many, many years later. We've come through Joshua and the initial conquest of the land. We've come through judges and all of those seasons and cycles of sin and, and then crying out to the Lord in repentance and God mercifully restoring them and protecting them and then once again abandoning him and going their own way. And we've come all the way through that to Samuel, the final judge, years and years later, and they do exactly what God said they were going to do with exactly the motive God said they would do it. I, think, I wish that we would understand that. Sometimes we need to grasp this. God knows man better than we will ever know ourselves. I mean, uh, I think for some of us uh, who, who have been uh, doing the McShane reading and, and recently through the Gospel of John, when you come to the Gospel of John and chapter 2, there is a statement in there that just makes your mind spin a little bit and you're thinking, well, what's going on? Maybe you're feeling a little bit Peter-like and you think you need to uh, call Jesus aside and uh, rebuke him and instruct him a little bit. Don't do that. It says this in John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem, that is Jesus, 
at the Passover feast, many believed in him when they saw the signs that he was doing. All right? Many, now, did they believe because of his words? Mm -hmm. They believed because of his signs. And the scripture is showing us here that there is a kind of superficial appreciation, a superficial recognition that's not the saving faith that God grants. It, really in the language of John chapter 6, when Jesus turns to the disciples says, will you also leave me? They said, to whom shall we go? Because we have come to believe and to know. That you are the Holy One of God. I mean, it's not just, um, yeah, we think you might be the Messiah. We think you might be the prophet. Okay, they believed when they saw the signs he was doing. But look what verse 24 says. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them. Because he knew what was in every man. Or he knew what is in all people. And needs no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Well, how did Jesus have that? I thought only God would have that. You write on that one. Only God has that one. Only, well, what is Jesus doing forgiving sin? The Pharisee said, only God can forgive sin. And the answer once again was, you're right about that. Jesus is God. Please listen. Please hear it. Please figure it out. Jesus says, be still and rebukes the wind and the waves. And they are still. And a calm person. And they say, what manner of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. And the fact is that question fell just a little short, didn't it? <laughs> Because it was beyond their understanding. Because they had not yet had their minds opened to understand the scriptures as they would at the end of the gospel. So God knows all things and he says all these things. And it was in 1 Samuel 8 that it says this. Um, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. As he said, you don't want this. You don't want this, kings. It's going to be bad for you. They said, no. There shall be a king over this. Doesn't ask Samuel, pray and see if God would be agreeable to this. It's just, this is what we want. And it's interesting because the language back in our Deuteronomy 17 is, when you come in and you're dwelling in it, then you say, I will set a king over us. It is a, that they have a fixed, obstinate determination. God's known it. So this is, this is a surprise and a great degree of frustration comes upon Samuel. God's known it's coming all along. Now, it doesn't change the fact that, that God is grieved and that they will bear the consequences in themselves for that. But God is not surprised. And again, we're going to see that it says um, that way. I'm still in for Samuel 8 verse 19 and 20. There shall be a king over us that we may also be. Like all the nations. And that our king may judge us. And go out before us in battle. Now again I ask you this question. When it came. <laughs> the, when God marked out a nation for himself. And he brought them into this land. Was it a king who took them out in battle? Who led them in battle? The Lord led them in battle and every single uh, people who came up against them, regardless of their gods, regardless of their sacrifices, regardless of the walls that they've built, regardless of the weapons that they've prepared. Who's victorious? Battle after battle, city after city, they absolutely overcome these men, these nations, these earthly kings. And yet, what is their desire? I mean, doesn't something in your heart and mind just begin to stir and, and start to say, what is wrong with these people? And here's the answer to that question. They're people. Which happens to be what we are. So, by nature, what is wrong with us? And who sees anything good in us? Whatever we are, even if we were to be someone who works harder than all the rest, we would still have to say, nevertheless, not I, but the grace of God 
at work within me. And look at the failure. In 2 Kings verse 17, it tells us this of the people of Israel as it's recounting their history. We see the failure. It says, when they came into the land and they inherited, it says, they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out. 2 Kings 17, 8. Before the people and in the customs that the king of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel, I love what it says in verse 19. And the people of Israel did secretly against their Lord, their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns and from watchtowers to fortified city. They did it secretly. I guess that way God can't find out, right? No, even if they don't publish it, even if they're trying to keep their sins sort of secret within their own community. Is there any hiding things from God? No. And so you, you, you see the warning, don't be like them. These things were an abomination and yet their heart's desire and design was what? Let's be like them. Let's, let's look, and, and I, I fear that there can be this pattern that can even infiltrate within the context of Christendom. Where people begin to ask themselves this question, question instead of asking, how might we best serve, worship, glorify, and honor God? They start to ask this question. How can we make our services and our worship as much like the world as possible. Let's, let's, form, uh, let's form hipster churches, you know, with coffee shops, let's, uh, and on and on and on and on, however it may be. And why? Why would our goal be to be like the world? Now, again, sometimes, uh, sometimes the intention becomes opposite that as well. And someone will say, our goal is to be the absolute opposite of the world. And so, you know, if, if, uh, if the world wears collared shirts, we're wearing three-piece suits, you know. And if the world wears, uh, 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 I don't know. Dresses past their knees. We're going down past the ankles. We're going to just go farther. And, and again, then the, the goal is to be the opposite of them. The goal is not to be them. And the goal is not to be the opposite of them. The goal is to be faithful to God. Faithful to his word. Fix our eyes upon him. And to give him all that we have. Okay? Because realistically, if you were to travel around with Jesus... And his, his disciples and apostles, they did not bear distinctive, visible difference from the unbelieving community around them. They wore the same clothes. They wore their hair in the same manners. The, the, their goal was not to, to check a list that so in every single facet of our life we should somehow be different. No, there will be significant differences as we line ourselves up according to the word of God. As we line ourselves up in commitment to scripture. But the goal is not sameness. The goal is not difference. The goal is God honoring in accord with his word. Amen. All right. And we see that there was a sad failure that took place here for them. They rejected God. But let's go on from that. The introduction of God's perfect knowledge and then they reject him. Let us look in this at the specific. I call this sermon, by the way, laws for lesser kings. Because you're going to see in this chapter, it's interesting. Though God would allow there to be a king who was still setting commands and authority over that king. The king of kings and the lord of lords. And so that, that king himself was still under another king. Just like in the New Testament, someone who might have the position of master in this world needed to remember what? He still had a master who is in heaven. And, and with regard to these kings, he begins to give them the laws for the lesser kings. And the first one is simple and not one that I would have anticipated or you. It says this. 
Verse 16. He may not acquire many horses for himself. Now, that seems like an odd command, right? What's the problem? What's so evil about horses? What did they ever do? I don't remember a horse wandering into the garden and deceiving Eve. What's, what's wrong with horses? The answer is there's nothing wrong or inherently evil about horses. But horses had a specific and profound historical role and that's, so they are told they are not to acquire many horses or cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire many horses. Since the Lord said to you, you shall never go that way again. Now, it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Listen as I read. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots. And an army larger than your own. What does it say? You shall not be afraid of them. Because that which in that day was one of the most definitive weapons of warfare was a horse. The man on a horse was somewhat, somewhat out of the grasp. Hard to attack from the man on the ground. He had the high position. He could move with swiftness and quickness. And then you add on to that chariots. And, and, and the, the war horses were the most distinctive and definitive weapon of that era. And so the thought is, when you go out to battle and you see the horses and you see the chariots, don't be afraid of them. Why? It goes on to say this. For the Lord your God is with you. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to battle. The priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say. Hear O Israel today you are drawing near for a battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God he is with you. He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. To give you the victory. So again, why was it that the king was not to acquire for himself many horses? Not because of horses, but because it was the weapon. And the tendency would quickly become what? Our confidence in victory against the enemy is not that the Lord is with us. Our confidence is in our war horses. We have the people, the equipment... The strategy to fight and win. And so if they can't acquire many horses, it means with great frequency, they would go out and, and as a battle would be engaged, they would be the ones that the odds makers would say, I don't think they've got much of a shot. I don't think they have much of a chance because they've got all of these horses and all of these chariots, and they don't. And so what would be the dependence every time they have to go out in battle? God, we don't trust in ourselves. We don't have the war horses or the wherewithal to win this battle. But we know this. If you are with us, no weapon fashion can stand against us. <laughs> if you are with us, one man can put a hundred, a thousand to flight. We know this. And so you have that strong warning there in the scripture. Psalm 33 verse 17 reminds the people this. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue you. The tendency of men was to put their hope in what? I mean, it sounds like a ridiculous phrase if you say it in our modern era. Hope in horses. What? Yeah, no. Today, again, we're thinking other forms of weapons and warfare. And if a horse comes up against a tank, it may be a little outmatched. But in this context, that's what people would put their confidence in. But the word of God reminds us, and you probably know this one, and we're waiting for me to get to it. Proverbs 21, verse 31 says what? The horse is made ready. 
for the day of battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Yeah. So what? The king was not to acquire many horses, and in particular, not to get the horses from Egypt. Now, is there anything about that command that's hard to understand? Anything complicated? All right. Well, then, maybe you're aware of the fact that in the history of Israel, there was, who was the first king? Saul. And then Saul lost that privileged position as a king because of his direct disobedience to God. And put in his place was another man of shepherd background by the name of David. Succeeding David on the throne was his son Solomon. Is that not right? And Solomon, among all men of all time, except Jesus was the wisest man anywhere ever. Now I ask you, if you take a man and he's the wisest anywhere ever, would you consider this wise? If God says something, obey it. Yeah. It didn't actually require a ton of wisdom. To recognize if God says it, do it, right? But again, it's important for us to note the deficiency of men's wisdom, even the most magnificent wisdom of men, because regarding this particular King Solomon, it says this in 2 Chronicles 25. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So again, well, 4,000, uh, well then how many, how many horses are in a stall? Well, it doesn't take a whole lot of brilliance in math to realize, uh, you know, that there's about three or four horses per stall and, uh, he stationed the chariots in the cities with the king in Jerusalem. And he ruled over all the kings of the Euphrates and the lands of the Philistines to the borders of Egypt. Verse 28 of 2 Chronicles 9 says this. And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt. You're thinking, wait a second. What did the word say? Don't acquire many horses and don't get horses from Egypt. What has he done? He's acquired many horses, and he got them from Egypt. That's a wise man, isn't it? Well, the wisdom of man, apart from the grace of God, is still going to be deficient and disobedient to the clear will of God. We trust not in our wisdom. But in the wisdom and grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, we see he moves on from horses, which, which indeed is characterized in that time by weapons, as weapons. He moves on in this passage, in this laws to lesser kings, from horses to wives. There is no practical connection between horses and wives. All right? Don't misunderstand any of that here. He moves on from that to wives. And what does he say concerning wives? In verse 17, you can read it with me. And he, that's the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Again, I ask you, is that command unclear? Don't acquire many wives. Because if you do, your heart will turn away. Well, probably the, the assumption can always well up like this. Well, a foolish man would let those wanton women lead him astray. But I'm a wise man. I know better. I, I understand the danger involved. And I'll avoid it. Because I'm wise. The scripture reminds us not only of 
kings, but of the children of Israel themselves. Back in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and following, he tells all of the people of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them. Giving your daughters or taking their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. Break down their altars. Dash them to pieces. Destroy their carved images. Burn them with fire. So the warning is simple. If you mix with them by marriage... They will lead you astray. The thought often is, no, we will mix with them and then we will lead them in the right way. Yeah. Good company corrects bad morals. What? That's not how it works, is it? People sometimes act like that's how it works. Good company corrects bad morals. Let's do this. I'm going to be a friend to the worldly. Well, bad company corrupts good morals is what the scripture says. Come out from among them. Be separate from them. But we deceive ourselves. Much like our wise Solomon did. It tells us in 1 Kings chapter 11. Now generally when that, when that prohibition is given there in Deuteronomy 17. He shall not acquire for himself many wives. I would have characterized many wives as three or four. Or ten. Aye, 1 Kings 11. Three. Speaking of Solomon says he had. 700 wives and 300 concubines, which means women that he took marital privileges with who weren't even officially his wives. A thousand women. I ask you, did Solomon make a little breach there? Now, we'll tell you, this is, this is our, our, our t the tendency... Uh, it is unlikely that Solomon necessarily went and had a wedding one day. He's standing here, much like Logan recently did. And on this side over there are standing 700 women. And they're getting married all at once. You think that's how it probably happened? Very, very unlikely. We don't have a pattern of that anywhere in scriptures. And so the tendency is what? Well, just one more. Just one more time. I mean, I already have 400. <laughs> What's 401? And I, I guess I would agree. If you've already got 400, what is 401? But why did you have 400 that eventually, well... I mean, what's 500? What's seven? What's a thousand? He has himself a thousand wives. And look what it says in verse 3. Again, still finishing the, the verse in 1 Kings 11. And his wives turned his heart away. Even Solomon, with all the wisdom given him, you could ask him about any subject. And he knew it. And he would answer accurately and precisely. I could have probably asked him this question. Solomon. What warning and requirements did God place upon those who would be king through Moses? <laughs> and he would have probably had the wisdom and wherewithal to say, don't acquire many horses, don't multiply and acquire many wives. But there is a difference sometimes between knowing and doing. Isn't it right? And so this man, once again, what tragic 
failure. And it goes on to explain for when, verse 4, Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. I read that sentence and does not, uh, 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 my heart seems to drop just a little bit within me. God had given him so much that exceeded all who went before him in wisdom. In order to equip him to be a good and proper king for the good of his people. And Solomon squandered that for self. It was not wholly true to God, as was the heart of his father David. It even goes so far as to say in verse 8, he did for all of his foreign wives. He built shrines for them. Uh, made offerings and who made offerings and sacrifices to their God. Verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep the Lord's commands. God told him. God also put in place uh, uh, practical things that would protect him. Here's one of the ways that you'll be able to keep yourself from this temptation and tendency. Don't get many wives. He didn't do it. Beyond that, now verse 17 goes on to say, of Deuteronomy 17, Nor shall you acquire for yourself wealth, excess silver and gold. So we have weapons in, in the form of horses. We have wives in the form of women. We have wealth in terms of silver and gold. Again, I ask the simple and becoming exceedingly redundant question. Is that hard to understand? Don't acquire for yourself. Except, oh, what, what can he do? People are bringing gifts from all over the world. And they're giving. The, I mean, it's not his fault, right? Well, it's not fault. The, his fault they're giving it. To him, it might be his fault that he's storing it up. <laughs> that he's not making use of it, giving it away, spreading as, as needed. He's not doing what he ought to do. And it tells us these words in 2 Chronicles 9, 20 and following. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. And all the vessels in the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold, which is a fancy house that he built in addition to his own palace, in addition to the glorious temple. It's, it goes on to say this even, silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. It goes on in verse 22 of First King, uh, Second Chronicles 9 to say, Thus Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches. Oh, what, what did God say not to do? Acquire it. And what did he do? Got more than anyone else. I, it doesn't say it, but I, I, it would surprise me if anyone had more horses than him. It would absolutely stun me if anyone had more wives than him. <laughs> Clearly it's declared no one had more horses wealth than him i mean this is the wisest man who ever walked on the face of the earth and the clear instruction for what kings should never do he did them all oh my goodness isn't that stunning oh but we we go from that we go from looking at the weapons and looking at the wives and looking at the wealth to the things he's not to do, to turning to a priority of that which he must do, and that is a commitment to the Word of God. And look at that with me as we take it up now in verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. Now let me just explain this to you. Remember, this is, this is the days before publishing. 
There were no lithograph machines. There were no printing presses, no offset printing. That was not available. There were no Xerox machines. There were no copying. There was no mimeographs. None of those kinds of things were there. If you wanted something, what had to be done? It had to be copied by hand. And there would be the, the Levitical priests would copy and make copies by hand. But it's interesting, the standard that was, that was used by the Levitical priests throughout their ages, as well as was adopted in later times, is there would be the chief priest who is responsible in all those things. And those who are the scribes, the younger ones, are making copies. As they make copies, they were really diligently careful. They would count the number of letters in a given line. And if the number of letters is not the same in a given line, if there's been a, a word change, a letter change, if there's any mistake that's been made in the scroll that's being written, that scroll would be taken, burned, and they'd start over. Which is one of the reasons in the history of our documents, the, the astounding accuracy, clarity of the transmission of God's word, it exceeds any, uh, any writing of men known. How consistent it's been through the ages. The trustworthiness of God's word passed on. He would have to take himself a book, a scroll, and he would have to write Word for word, letter for letter, the law. The word of God that they had at that time. And it say, um, the, and, and the ESV really renders it right here, approved by the Levitical priest. He can't skip parts. He can't leave parts off. He, he, he can't change words to suit himself. He had to make a true and accurate copy of that word. Now, sometimes I wonder this. Uh, many will say that they find things much easier to remember. I mean, there's different ways it can happen. I mean, you can hear something. You can read something. If you can be reading something while you're also hearing it. But then what if you see it, read it, and write it down? I mean, the, the, the getting it into the mind, significant when you do it that way. So there would be, for this king, no part of the law of God that he's unfamiliar with. No part of the law of God that he could say, I had no idea. I had no idea that's what God... I mean, that's all gone. All excuses are absolutely removed because all that God requires, they were going to read it and write it down. And so they were exposed to every single word in the scriptures in that day. But better even further than that. Not only would he write it down. But it says this in verse 19. And it shall be with him. He's making a copy. Not just as some sort of religious ritual to go through for kingship. He's writing it down so that he can keep it. <laughs> And, and not just so that he can possess it and it be with him. Remember, how many people in the children of Israel had a copy of the law in its entirety? Yeah, it was in the temple to the degree that there were other copies. They were also kept in the temple or they were given out to specific scribes like in Ezra who would study the law and who would work on it and seek to know it and, and live it and communicate it. But here would be one. He would in effect for his day have his own Bible in his possession. He would keep it with him. I like the phrase, the, the sense there of keep it with him isn't just carrying the general sense that it will be in his garage. You know, it'll be in his storeroom. It'll be in his basement. It'll be in his house. No, the, the sense of it is much more personal proximity. It will be with him. And, and, and not just because there's somehow power in the presence of the scroll. No, no, no. What's going to happen when it's with him? And he shall read it. Read in it all 
the days of his life. Whew, that's great, isn't it? So, well, I, and you hear this from believers all the time, you know, but, but it's a legalistic thing to try to say that we should read the Bible every day. Like, well, I guess it's a legalistic thing to also encourage you to eat a few times a week, right? Why would it be the word of God to someone who may have likely been doing this like David? He delighted in it more than silver and gold, more than all riches, more than honey from the honeycomb. It was his meditation day and night. It was a lamp unto his feet, a light unto his path. I mean, he just, when you read Psalm 119, you just think, wow, this man really loves God's word, right? Well, why would David love the word of God so much? Brothers and sisters, if you read it, you will too. The more you take it in, it is food for your soul. It enables you to, to rise above and, shake above and shake off this dust that clings to us. Because it is something far more valuable, far more truer, far more necessary. And so you see in this, he would read it every day of his life. I love that. Yeah, listen. Brothers and sisters, I desire that you would live like kings. Live like kings. Now, I know your mind is going the wrong direction right now. Let's bring it back. Not in a palace. Not sitting on throne. When I say live like kings, what am I meaning? Read the word of God every day of your life. Now, not again because it is jumping through another hoop of religious rite or requirement. Because it is a living word, a powerful word, a transforming word, an effective word. Why is he to read it? Well, someone said, well, because God said, and if God says, read it, then what do you do? Read it. But remember this, especially for those of us who live under the blessed realities of the new covenant, the things that God commands, he commands them for our good. The, the commands aren't against us. They're for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And sometimes I think our minds get really off if we start thinking, oh, God's not for me. He's making me give up this and turn aside from that. Yes, for your good, for your joy and your delight and your encouragement and your growth in him and service to his purposes and his glory. That's wonderful, right? Yes. Listen to what it says. Read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Yeah. That the idea of fear carries many senses in the Old Testament. It is to revere and reverence. It is to worship. It is to serve. It is to obey. It carries all of those senses in, in, in the, under the Hebrew. Uh, the broad scope... It's also important to know this, the, to, to know the will of God, to know the plan of God, to know what is pleasing to God, that's not something that is mystically transmitted to us. We learn those things, and how do we learn them? Through his word. That's why we say, sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's why we argue for the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture. That by these things, the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. The, he is to take in and read the word that he might learn. I fear for dear believers who, who might occasionally have the tendency to do their reading or monthly reading or daily reading out of just a sheer sense of duty. I've committed to do this every day, so I'm going to do it. Well, okay. Um, I mean, that 
to me, that's like somebody giving you one of uh, a delicious strawberry and cream pie, you know. Well, I've committed to eat a slice of this every day, so I guess I'll just force myself to do it again. Yeah, I'm not going to be, it's going to be not a sense of dread. It's going to be a delight, a desire, and enjoyment that I may learn these things. And then it goes on to say what? By keeping all the words of this law and statutes and doing them. Now that seems like doubling up, right? Keeping and doing. What is the difference between keeping and doing? There isn't necessarily a difference but in our own experience, if it's helpful for application, you can think of it like this. I'm not saying that this is what it means. I'm saying it's helpful for application. And that is this keeping would be keeping yourself back from the things it says not to do. And then doing them, doing the things you're instructed to do. Keeping back from acquiring for yourselves horses, wives, and wealth. Doing the writing and the reading and the learning from the scriptures, right? So there's both the restraint of not engaging in things or what we often will call the acts of sins of commission and the sins of omission, right? Don't do what God says not to do. Do what he says to do. It's pretty simple, right? But if it's simple and clear, then everyone will do it. Amen? We, we wish it was pretty simple and clear. And what did Solomon do? The opposite. It, it, strangely enough, when I look at this list, it almost seems as if Solomon <laughs> made it his bucket list to do the opposite of everything that a king was supposed to do. And it's possibly he did so with this confused confidence. I will not fall. I will stand firm. I trust in my wisdom. Oh God help us. To not trust in our wisdom. Keeping it and doing them. Verse 20 also says something more. That his heart may not be lifted up from above his brothers. So not only does it instruct us in the way that we should walk. It also humbles us. Because when you're constantly exposing yourself to the word, one of the things that the word does is it exposes yourself to you. It's like looking in a mirror, as it says in James. And you look in that reflection, and what you see looking back at you is just a little short of perfect. Or maybe more than just a little short, you know. It, it, you know, it's, the, it's that idea I don't want to look in the mirror anymore because I don't recognize that person who's looking back at me. I don't have time to get ready even this morning. Straight out of bed, late for work, I'm going to go. I'm not even going to look at the mirror because I don't want to see what it looks like. Does that happen to people sometimes? Put on a hat and go. It happens. That ought not happen with regard to our spiritual lives and reality. We take up that word every day. And when we see it and we see ourselves when we look at others and now they, and their hair is messed up. Yeah, are we mocking them? Ah, no, we're not because we know under our hat it's just as bad or worse, isn't it? And so it, when, when someone was going to take in the word of God, it would keep him from exalting himself because he realized he doesn't perfectly do it. And what God requires is higher. And he would realize every victory that I lead them out to in battle. We're not victorious because of me. Actually we're victorious because of the Lord. I'm king over all of this territory. Not because of anything in me. But because God has given us this land. And God has established me as king over his people. And so it's just constantly would be a reminder. Where I am. And where he is. To not exalt ourselves other people. And again then it goes on to say. And that he may not turn aside. From the command. Either to the left or the right. There is within the divine plan of God. A strengthening. Steadfastness. And stability. That comes upon God's people. 
from the regular intake of his word. You know, someone says, well, I, you know, I always find myself wandering off and stumbling and struggling. And, and, and inevitably, one of the questions that you can ask somebody who's, who's finding themselves oft in direct disobedience. Brother, you're spending earnest time in God's word. You're spending earnest, prayerful time in God's word, considering it, meditating over it. Comparing your life to it, pleading with God to work those things in your heart, to cause you to, to despise the things that he despises, to desire the things that he desires. Are you doing this? Because if you are, God will use it to have its good effect. The word is a living word. It's sharp. It divides, lays bare, joints Marrow, motives, nothing is hidden. Now, a sword is not generally something that we use in our daily preparations. You know, I don't reach into the drawer and get out the sword to comb my hair, whatever that may be. Because a sword has with it a little bit of a negative edge to it, doesn't it? A little bit of a cutting, a little bit of a pruning. But those whom the Lord loves, he prunes, he chastens. He rebukes. We are in the vine. He prunes us. Why? That we might bear more fruit. Oh, the richness of God's word. Sometimes also, think about it. How many of our brothers and sisters think, uh, that, speak of the Old Testament as being so irrelevant? It is not irrelevant. These things are so pertinent. But why? Because the nature of man never changes. The pride of man. The confidence in our wisdom. The confidence in our own strength. The confidence in our own way. It continues to carry on. But God's word reminds us. That it must not. We must not function like that. So just by way of reminder. Of the things that we have learned today. We have learned brothers and sisters. That there is a warning. To the king. Not to acquire for himself horses. Not to trust in men's strength and men's weapons and, and, and men's capacity. But to lean upon the Lord. Not to acquire, acquire for himself many wives. That he, would, that he would love and ultimately that would lead him away from that which should be his first and preeminent love. That he should not acquire wealth because God has given us in Christ a far truer treasure. Tells him about the word. Write it. Keep it. Read it. Learn from it. Be restrained from things. Don't do things. Do things. Be, it will lead you in humility. It will give a steadfast stability. It will, in this case it says, it will provide for you long life and a life for his children. And I can't end it without saying this. The New Testament reminds us of this. People came from the ends of the earth. Even the queen Sheba came from the ends of the earth to see Solomon. But Jesus says something greater than Solomon was here. And with all of his wisdom Solomon did not keep the word and will of God. But a greater wisdom than Solomon came. And he kept the will of God in everything. Now you and I will fail to some degree and will continue to stumble in part because we are not Christ and that will keep us humble and dependent but we will not be content to continue in our present level of compromise we want that we will grow in grace and knowledge. Our hearts hunger to pursue holiness. We have been granted, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the mind of Christ. That's a greater wisdom than the wisdom of Solomon. And that we would, how would we know the mind of Christ? It is made known to us. So brothers and sisters... Trust not in the things of this world, the people of this world. Do not attach yourself to them. Do not set your hopes upon them. Set them upon God. How will you achieve this with any degree of success? It is with utter dependence upon God in prayer and earnest pursuit through his revealed and powerful and living word. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we are such a blessed people that you have given us your word. And surely there have been so many times that we've taken it for granted. 
really in the context even oftentimes of modern Christianity, how we've let men's thoughts and men's writings about your word, which can at times be very fruitful, we've oft let that even supplant the centrality of your word. Lord, we pray that you would stir up within our hearts again today a, a great cautiousness with regard to the things in and of the world that are around us. A great priority to the person and power of our God. A deep commitment to the riches and the powerful, effective work of your word and spirit within your people. Lord, even as the king would himself hope for long life, we thank you that in the great king and in the great law keeper, you have given us eternal life in him. God, may you continue by your word to conform us to the glorious image of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.